Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Harry Lambert about the troubles in Scottish Labour. Then our editor Jason Cowley will talk to Shiraz Maher about the young Britons who've gone to fight in Syria. Finally, our literary editor Tom Gatti talks to Peter Miller about the legacy of the Berlin Wall 25 years after its fall. It's been a big week for Scottish Labour. Last week, the leader resigned, saying that Ed Miliband was running it like a branch office. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and Harry Lambert, editor of our election site, May 2015, to talk about what happens next. So, George, I'll start with you. What did Johan Lamont, the, the former leader of Scottish Labour, why did she couch her criticisms the way that she did? Well, she was um, enraged by her treatments in, 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 in over, that, over the final week of her, her time as leader, and particularly... Uh, that she was told the general secretary had basically left his position, that he'd been driven out, um, and uh, that was presented to her as a fait accompli. Um, even though you know he's the Scottish Labour general secretary, she should be responsible for deciding who holds those positions. And then there were rumours um, denied by uh, denied by some um, that she was being briefed against. There were that uh, she accuses. Um, her friend Margaret Margaret Curran, the Scot- shadow Scottish secretary. That's one of the things I find most remarkable. Mm. Is it's like they've not been friends since school, and she thought that she was briefing against her. And you thought, wow, politics is a really cold world. <laughs> um, and um, but it was it was quite remarkable. So in this interview with the with the Daily Record, it, it wasn't just that she'd resigned. I mean, no one was particularly surprised by that. It was the manner of her resignation, the way she adopted nationalist rhetoric, and this charge that. Uh, Westminster, the Westminster Party treated Scottish Labour like a like a branch office. I mean, it was described to me as uh, like someone walking out of the room and then throwing a grenade behind them. Someone else, another MP, referred to it as pressing the nuclear button. Um, and the the tremors are still uh, are still going on in Scottish Labour. And Harry, it's a very big question electorally, not just up in Scotland, but also for the May 2015 general election. Labour is really relying on those Scottish seats in order to to win power. How big a challenge is, is Scottish Labour facing at the MP level? Absolutely. Well, if you look at the election and how it's been shaping up, then for about a year we've all thought that Labour would likely end up with more seats because of the way the system works. So more seats than the 2011 Holyrood elections, is that right? Oh, uh, sure, but I, I actually meant uh, they would end up with more seats than the Tories, oh. whatever happens next next time. Oh, I see, overall, yeah. Okay. Overall, um, rather than looking at Scotland specifically for a moment, just think about Westminster in 2015, we, we long thought they would do so, but if the SNP can take off uh, 
more than 10 seats or maybe even up to 20 seats from Labour rather than just a handful, which is what they're expected to do, then that becomes far more precarious and it looks like Labour will be close to 300 seats overall rather than around 320 or so. And that shows the precariousness, I guess, of Labour's position overall, that they've kind of scratched together seats from a lot of disparate groups. I mean, they deny that they're pursuing a kind of core vote strategy, but they are Mm. not looking at a big, sweeping, Tony Blair-style majority by any means. Absolutely. And if you look at the electoral system, it's it's, uh, extremely surprising that they're they're likely to fare so badly. I mean, they're on 32% now in the polls, and that would leave them with around 300 seats. If the Tories were on 32% as they are, then... They're, they're closer to 270 seats. So there's a big advantage that the system gives Labour. So you would expect them to be up closer towards what they need for a majority, but it currently looks like they're going to have to form a coalition, possibly with the SDP. <laughs> um, no, the SNP. The SNP. And George, enter to the rescue of Scottish Labour, uh, Jim Murphy, the shadow, former Shadow Defence Secretary, who um, was booted out of the Shadow Cabinet, has uh, had, a, by all accounts, a very good Scottish referendum campaign, he did his 100 towns and 100 days to Auburn. Um, I mean, everyone was expecting him to stand. Is he now the, the hot favourite? Absolutely, um, he is. And he has um, a much higher profile after that. He was one of the heroes of the referendum campaign. He's seen as someone who has the energy, the intelligence, the agility to take on um, an insurgent SNP, which is um, soon to be taken over by Nicola Sturgeon, who is seen... Um, as uh, an equally formidable opponent to Salmond. Um, some perhaps even think she'll be, a, she'll be a tougher opponent, partly because she will uh, position the SNP to the, to the left of where it was and try and harness a lot of the energy of the wider nationalist movements. Of course, they've had this huge surge in, huge surge in membership um, to, uh, from 25,000 to 83,000. The challenge for, for Murphy, I think, is first to show that he he would be prepared to stand up to the Westminster party, um, that he would be prepared to make Scottish Labour not just autonomous in theory, but in, autonomous in practice. Because, of course, Joanne Lamont was on paper more powerful than any leader of Scottish Labour in history. Before Joanne, uh, leaders were merely head of the Hollywood group there. Mm. Um, Joanne was the first to be elected as leader of the Scottish wide party with authority over over the party's 41 MPs. So technically she was in charge of Gordon Brown when he was yes. going around making his stirring speeches in favour of the union. But it never seemed like it in practice, and people say that's because she didn't have the authority of MPs. She Friends and uh, critics both say you know, she spoke privately um, for, for more than a year, perhaps now, as, of herself as a, as a reluctant leader, someone who didn't crave the limelight, but who felt duty-bound to take over the leadership um, when the party was at its at its lowest ebb in 2011. And uh, how much do you think it's a problem for Jim Murphy that he's coming up from Westminster, given the exact criticisms of Lamont were the fact that, you know, this is, you know, we're getting directives from Westminster. How hard does that make someone coming up from Westminster go, hi guys, I'm here yeah. to sort out Scottish Labour? It is one of the challenges he faces. It helps that he spent so much time there during the referendum campaign. But of course, under the rules, he has to stand for election to Holyrood, by the time of the next devolved election, which is May 2016. Um, Sources I've spoken to suggest that he may well try and stand at the general election. So he will uh, talk to, agree, reach an agreement with an MSP who's standing down and then stand in a by-election on the day of the on the day of the general election. Oh, that's interesting because you're presuming the last thing anybody wants is a is a by-election. Well, which brings us neatly, Harry, to Rochester and Strood, which is coming up. Um, What are the polls now saying about that? Well, it looks after last week's Comrades poll that 
UKIP are likely to win in the seat. Labour, who uh, some in the party hoped would challenge, uh, don't seem to have managed to put up one. Um, the Tory party still trail reckless after we move parties. So it looks like we're going to have another UKIP victory here. Um, and looking ahead to the 2010 election, Ashcroft's poll suggests that there are a couple other seats like Thurrock, Thanet South, uh, Great Yarmouth, maybe even places like Great Grimsby, where the party could also win seats. So this is likely to be their second MP and then maybe more next year. And I think there's also another milestone today. The Greens have been put ahead of the Lib Dems in a, in a national poll. In light of that, George, does it make sense still to have them excluded from those wider leaders' debates? I think they should be in at least one. Um, and I think they still could be, um, depending on how the how the negotiations go. Um, but I also think they haven't. I mean, they haven't. They're nowhere near achieving the heights of popularity that that UKIP have achieved. Where UKIP um, obviously won the European elections, uh, they're now um, well established in in polls as as the third party. Most Liberal Democrats you speak to expect them to finish ahead of them in terms of votes in 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 the general election. Um, you know the Greens have had uh, have, have certainly polling um, the, you know, at their best um, at any time since the 1980s. Um, but I think there are I think were were um, if you were the the parties in in opposite positions were were the Greens that had won the European elections and uh, that were in third place in the polls and were say UKIP that was in the in the Greens position. I don't think you'd have a lot of Liberals saying we've got to get UKIP <laughs> in the TV debates. Yes, funny that one. Um, and you can see why. Um, and I think there's a lot of resentment um, on the left at UKIP's rise, partly for, because they are a nasty right-wing party, um, but also because I think there's this idea that their rise is um, is artificial, that it's just driven by the media and because they always have Nigel Farage. And now it's true that... Nigel Farage um, is on question time a huge amount. I think he's appeared almost more than any other senior figure, perhaps apart from apart from Ken Clark. Um, but I think it's a mistake to see UKIP's rise as purely a media-driven phenomenon. I think it's because they jumped on this issue of immigration, which mm. was rising in salience. Obviously, they've helped to reinforce that. But I think it's because Farage made the link, direct link between um, Britain's EU membership and immigration in a way that no other politician quite had before. We have to leave the EU to get control of our borders again. Mm. I just, mean, just on the Greens, sorry, in defence of the Lib Dems, which I feel like we should do. The, uh, someone has to, go someone on. Someone has to. The, the party, in, in these, these national polls, like the one in YouGov, which yesterday put the Greens on seven and the Lib Dems on six, that won't really be taking into account the incumbency effect that they're going to have in many local seats. So they'll probably poll a little bit higher than that 6%. And the Greens have more consistently been around five. So I'm not sure we can quite say yet that the Greens are now in fourth place. I think that's one of their big complaints about the Lord Ashcroft's polls <laughs> is the fact that it doesn't prompt by by name. So in Lib Dem seats where a lot of it is reliant on the fact that you might vote for a, you know, I mean, Jeremy Brown stepping down. But I'm sure there are mm. more people who would vote for Jeremy Brown than would express as a general love of the Lib Dems in a, in a poll. To be fair to Ashcroft, he does ask two questions. He asks a national question and a local question. And his reasoning is that, look, we don't, mention the constituents uh, MP's name or the PPC's name because we think that uh, we say considering your local candidates and if you actually if you know their names if you know their names and you're going to put them in there and and you do see a big incumbency effect for Lib Dem MPs in those Ashcroft polls anyway well I hope you'll come back and join us again Harry and thank you to George as well I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. With us today I have 
Shiraz Maha, he's a regular New Statesman writer, and he's written this week's cover story about British jihadis fighting in Syria and Iraq on behalf of ISIS. He's a senior fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London. It's good to have you here. And with me also is our assistant editor, Sophie McBain, who used to live and work in Libya. Shiraz, um, I thought I'd begin by discussing this group of young British men known as the Portsmouth Boys, who went over to Syria um, to fight, one of whom was killed at the weekend in Kobani, Mehdi Hassan. How did you get in touch with them and what, what were they telling you? The Portsmouth uh, cluster of guys are really fascinating. Uh, one of their friends went out first uh, to, to Syria and he really um, was the outlier. He went and established the route, established the connection, and then the rest of the guys followed. And what, was he, what was his name? His name was Iftikhar Juman. Juman, yeah. And um, once he got out to Syria, uh, I came across him completely by chance one day on social media, on, on Twitter. And I thought, well, you know, wow, here, here's a Brit in Syria fighting jihad. Um, and so I just tweeted at him saying, can we talk? Um, and then obviously I wanted to pull him into more private conversations so that I had something. Uh, and we began to Skype off the back of that. And I really felt like I was able to build a relationship with him uh, pretty early on. Uh, and, and in that process and during that time, he arranged for his other friends from Portsmouth to, to travel out there and to, to join him. So it, it was a cluster I got to know very well indeed. And this, this is a group of um, young, well-educated young British Muslims, um, grew up in Portsmouth. What do you think led to them to becoming so radicalised? In the first instance, I think um, here you have a group of guys, they are conservative, they are religious, they're engaging in proselytising activities back in Portsmouth. None of, none of that in and of itself is particularly radical or extreme, it's just conservatism. But what happened with uh, Iftikhar in particular was that he saw more and more of what was taking place in Syria. He was following the debates out there very closely indeed. And to my mind was someone who was principally motivated by the scale of the humanitarian suffering. He, he felt outraged by that. Now that's something that of course has appalled all of us. Um, but he being a Muslim decided that uh, jihad was the most appropriate way for him to help the Syrian people and to go out there and to defend them against uh, Bashar al-Assad. There is something, of course, that sits beneath that as well, which is there is a worldview. There is a worldview that says if you go out there and you die in the cause um, of, of doing that, you become a martyr. And there was a vision behind that, too, that he didn't want to go there and establish a secular state. He wanted to establish an Islamic state, and he was very explicit about that. So there were these elements of uh, a sort of more ideological hardline opinion beneath what he believed in. But the thing that really drove him there, the thing that made him get up, pack his bags and leave the UK was the scale of the humanitarian yeah. suffering. I, I understand that and I understand um, the motivation and I understand and accept that he's a devout and earnestly religious and conservative man. What I don't understand is how an individual such as him then ends up fighting for Islamic State, a, a desperately barbaric and nihilistic organisation. I mean, what, what, what happens? Well, I suppose there's two points to make here about him. One is that, uh, if you recall a few weeks ago, I wrote a cover story about the, the roots of radicalism uh, in this country. Now, we've had a strain of radical opinion that has run through British Muslim communities for, for decades, unfortunately, uh, in this country. And that says things like democracy is not for Muslims, that the Islamic State or caliphate is the ideal utopian model of governance. And, and a lot of people have bought into that idea. So I believe that was very much at the background of his mind, but nonetheless was sort of pervasive uh, political opinion that, that he believed in. With regards to his joining of the Islamic State, 
I mentioned the piece, of course, he actually wanted to join Jabhat al-Nusra mm-hmm. at, at the start. And he really wanted to join them because he believed they were the only group fighting for an Islamic ideal um, rather than uh, other groups, even uh, like groups like Ahrar al-Sham, which are nonetheless um, uh, pretty conservative and so on. But because of their personal morality codes, as it were, they let their members smoke. He didn't want to, to join them. <clears throat> so he ends up joining the Islamic State entirely by chance. It's an opportunity. He didn't know who they were, actually, when he arrived. And that's the other thing to note about Islamic State. Once it moved into Syria and it began to impose itself in that conflict, it really wasn't the beast it is today. And mm-hmm. it, it's worth remembering that this has been a process for that group of becoming increasingly hardline. That is not to say it wasn't a, an extremist group. It was always an extremist group. But it has slipped into further nihilism and into further barbarism over time. And um, from your conversations with, with some of these, these people, what, is, what, what do you get a sense of life like under the caliphate? How, how are they living? How tough is it? They are pretty euphoric about mm-hmm. uh, life under the caliphate. They believe this is the utopia that they've been promised, that they've been told about, and that they've been working towards. So in terms of day-to-day life, they, one of the things they always say is, you know, if only you could come here and see what life is like, it wouldn't be like what you see on the news or what you read about in the papers. It's, it's fantastic. Only one or two people die a day. It's, it's completely fine. Um, so, so they kind of normalize it. They rationalize it. Um, a lot of the time you do find them talking about comforts that are available to them. So they'll put up pictures of sweets that they're able to get. They talk about hair gel, which I mentioned in the piece. They talk about all these various things in order to normalize life and to say, you know, it's not that different to living in uh, London or in other parts of the UK or the West. Do you ask them about um, the capture of, of women? I mean, the Yazidi women, for example, and children, women being taken as um, sex slaves... Um, the execution of hostages, dark forces such as these. They, by and large, tend to explain away a lot of this stuff, and and they don't spend too much time, at least when talking to me, to uh, suggesting that they've contemplated it deeply or that that it's something that troubles them. With regard to the execution of the hostages, they tend to say things like, "Well, these guys were spies." Um, with Foley, for example, his brothers in the United States Air Force. So, that, so these give them license, as far as they're concerned, to perpetrate. Surely, the taxi driver from Salford. That, they know he wasn't a spy. They know he wasn't. That's been a, a difficult one. Um, I've not managed to speak to anyone in Islamic mm. State about his execution. Yeah. Certainly, members of other groups, Brits in Jabhat al-Nusra, for example, have been uh, condemning that act. Yeah, Sophie, do you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, this conversation shows just how deep a relationship you've managed to form with some of these people. They actually trust you to speak about their belief system and things. So I was wondering how you managed to go about doing doing that. How did you gain their trust? That's been a really very long process. Um, In the first instance, I reach out to these guys and say, you know, we're an academic centre. We're interested in portraying this for what it is. And we want to understand their motivations and what life is like for them. We're not so interested in doorstepping their families or uncovering their identities. Um, so that's been part of it. Uh, at a personal level, I'm a Muslim myself. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Um, Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. My doctoral work is all on um, uh, uh, Salafi jihadism, the ideology that really drives their worldview. Uh, and of course, at one point myself, I'd been an extremist Muslim. So I understand their worldview, I understand the sort of cultural 
um, moors that they're coming from. And that allows me to, to, to understand them. Uh, and, and the final point is really, you know, we do represent what they have to say without skewing it. So in the past, I've been invited to give evidence in Parliament before the Home Affairs Committee or the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I've told them, I said, do you have a message that you want to convey? And if they get back to me, then I have gone in and verbatim allowed them and given them an opportunity to, to get their point of view across. So uh, I think it's been sort of a two-way process of sort of demonstrating that, that I can trust them, but also that they can trust me um, because they could lie to me about lots of stuff. It's very difficult to get corroboration sometimes. Uh, and so sometimes I have had to take what they've said at face value and thankfully so far so good. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned one or two have said that they would actually like to go back to the UK. Do you think if they did manage to get back or if they were allowed back that they could pose a threat here in the UK? I think there is a class of foreign fighter who would definitely pose a threat uh, to the UK. But one of the things about this debate, and, and I'm afraid it's really come from the Home Office, has been to try and tar all of the foreign fighters with the same brush um, and to portray them as some kind of monolithic whole. They're not. People are fighting for very different reasons. People have gone for all kinds of different uh, um, purposes. Now, there are definitely people out there who could return to this country and would pose no threat at all. And the way to think about this is we already have 260 people back in this country who have fought out in Syria. We're only prosecuting about 40 of them. Uh, so, so there are something like 200 people walking the streets who uh, clearly thus far have not posed a, a great threat to us. And it's worth bearing that in mind in, in the context of that debate. Okay. We, I know that your pieces for the New States are being read at the very highest level of the government. Um, do you get a sense that you're being, you yourself may be being watched by the British security services? Are you in conversations with them? Are they, are they talking to you? I'm utterly convinced. Uh, in fact, I'm very sure that, that uh, my conversations are being intercepted, that uh, at some level things are being watched. Um, it's very important to us, at least, to try and maintain uh, some distance from the authorities to maintain our impartiality and our integrity, because the relationship we build with these fighters is based on, on trust. Um, so, of course, if someone told us quite clearly that they were planning to come back and to, to some atrocity, that would be problematic and we'd have to uh, inform the authorities. But by and large, no one really tells us that kind of thing. They're telling us um, things they've seen out there or uh, how much they hate the Assad regime or how much the, they don't want the United States to get involved, things like that. Um, and so that uh, is not somewhere where we have to really have a, a close relationship with the authorities. We um, ran a cover story a couple of weeks ago by John Simpson, the, the World Affairs editor of the BBC from Baghdad. And he was suggesting, and it was a very well-sourced piece, that some of the foreign fighters had been repulsed by the atrocities they'd witnessed and wanted out. There was a sense, too, that ISIS were fighting on too many fronts um, and already, perhaps, they were being pushed back. So there's two, two questions there, one about the demoralisation of the recruits and one about ISIS overreach, overstretching itself. With regards to the sort of... <clears throat> excuse me, with regards to the... Um the sort of state of mind of the foreign fighters, certainly the ones that we talk to tend to express um, complete dedication to the cause. By and large, that's what they're saying. They are um, buying into that idea and they want to uh, continue uh, on the path that they've chosen. The only exception to that is a, a couple of months ago, a group of foreign fighters, Brits, uh, did contact me to say they want to come back to the UK. And, and partly that was because they said, 
they were demoralized about the infighting. They, they'd come there to fight Assad, mm -hmm. and they didn't want to be fighting this turf war between the rebel groups. And actually, interestingly, one of them said he didn't want to fight the United States either, and that at uh, that stage the United States hadn't started bombing, but he felt the Islamic State was provoking them into a battle that he didn't want to be part of. So there are some people who have felt um, increasingly caught. Now, a lot of families say that their children have said to them in private, look, we'd like to come back, including Mahdi Hassan's family. That's not something we've been in a position to, to verify. And, of course, a lot of the families have uh, their own interest in, in saying that. So um, while it's not being unkind to them or uncharitable, it, it's certainly the case that we need to be very sure about you know, the veracity of the information we're getting. With regards to um, the Islamic State being overstretched, well, I think it has, uh, in some parts at least, um, overstretched. But this is an incredibly... Uh, a coherent, strategically adept movement. And I think they've realized the value um, of retreat, which most jihadist groups haven't done. They've retreated from other territories in the past to consolidate their strongholds, Raqqa, Deir Zor, Mosul. Uh, they pulled back from, from Azaz last year, oh, sorry, earlier on this year uh, in February. So th th they're not um, going to cut off their nose to spite their face. I think if they feel overstretched, they, they will pull back and they'll hold what they've got. And, and that's what makes them so interesting, actually. And why is the fight for Kobani um, so important for them? The fight for Kobani has always struck me as an anomaly, to be honest. I don't know quite why they, they've um, uh, gone there, but they're certainly seeking to build their corridor of influence uh, into northern Syria and to push further west mm -hmm. uh, into Syria. They've gone to Derbyk, for example, in the west, and moving back towards Azaz, where, where they retreated from. So this may be part of the consolidation process. They've also struggled traditionally against the Kurds um, uh, in northeastern Syria. And so I think... Having gone into Kobani now, it's become such a, a flashpoint between themselves and the West. It's now about the symbolic value to say, look, we are able to take this and the West can't do anything about it. OK, um, Shiraz, great to have you in again. Um, tremendous cover story, which I urge everyone to read this week. Um, thank you for your time. Sophie, of course, always good to have you here too. And I, as I say, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of New Statesman. Thank you. I'm Tom Gatti, culture editor of The New Statesman, and I'm on the line with Peter Miller, author, journalist, translator, who has in the current issue of The New Statesman a book review of three books about the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, published on its 25th anniversary. Um, Peter, you, you were there, um, and, and indeed had been there for, for some time before the fall of the wall. Um, can you just tell me how you how you ended up there and, and what your experience of living in East Germany was like? Sure. I mean, I actually ended up there when I was a very young correspondent, age just 26. I went there in 1981 and I was posted there for Reuters at the time. I was the only non-German correspondent on the other side of the wall. Um, I was following a sort of a long line of people who it's included Freddie Forsyth, who accidentally nearly caused a world war by a bit of misreporting. However, I was there, it was my first marital home. My wife and I lived there, had made extraordinarily good friends, um, blended right in with the, the population. Of course, we went quite normal because we could travel to West Berlin. We, we did a lot of our shopping in West Berlin, but um, it, it became a very personal place to us. And of course, we were had to live with the, being totally spied on by the Stasi and, and being with microphones in the walls of our flat. Um, many years later, they discovered there were actually twenty nine of them. So it was a very uh, strange 
uh, time altogether. And then I went from there to Moscow, um, also as a correspondent for Reuters, but came back for the Sunday Times to Berlin over the years, and indeed uh, ended up there, as you say, on the night of November the 9th, 1989. Were you really the the only um, the only British journalist? I was more than I was the only non-German journalist. Uh, nobody else had correspondence in East Berlin. It was quite tricky to have access. Reuters had a long tradition of having had someone there. Uh, and the only other people who were in, for example, the BBC man was actually living in West Berlin as a guest of the British military. Hmm. Uh, he crossed, uh, when he crossed into East Berlin, he did so as a, as a soldier, effectively. And obviously in civilian clothes. I mean, he wasn't actually a soldier, but there was nobody else on my side of the wall. And, and how easy was reporting from there? Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was like in all communist countries, having subsequently gone to Moscow, and indeed I worked in Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, everywhere, but I mean, you were under certain restrictions, but of course, what they really wanted to do was restrict who you talked to, who you got to know, and the Stasi weren't actually as good as following you as, uh, as they thought they were, I mean, for a long time, but I had a whole folder, my, my, in my own Berlin Wall book, 1989, the Berlin Wall, um, uh, they had, uh, I was nicknamed C., um, so I was nicknamed Streamer, my wife was nicknamed C, um, and everyone who came to visit us had a similar aquatic code name given to them. But nonetheless, they still didn't quite um, get hold of everything I did, even a totalitarian society actually isn't. They'd be much better if they were around now. And obviously, um, quite a few of the narrative threads in, in, in the books you've written about, and, and a lot of what we read about now, um, is about the attempts to cross the wall. Was that a large part of your reporting? Actually, no. No, not at all. Uh, to be honest with you, sorry, to be, very few people actually tried to cross the wall, and those who did mostly died. I did have um, one friend whose brother had tried on two occasions and been brought back, and he was, he was jailed in Bautzen, which was a very high-security uh, prison, and eventually he was thrown out of the country. But the vast majority of East Germans, although they would much have liked to go west, they weren't about to risk their lives for it. Um, I, I did also have another friend whose, whose uncle had been killed crossing the wall, um, but that was just in the very early days after it had been built, and he found the local pub he always went to was suddenly in West Berlin, and he was really just in search of a good drink that he went to cross the wall and was, and was shot dead for his pains. I mean, that must, that must have been a very, very unusual case, because as you say, um, most people must have been aware of the extremely high risk. So what, what would have, what were the circumstances that you saw which would have pushed people to, to actually want to take their lives into their own hands and cross? Very little, I'm afraid to say. It's, it's a strange thing, but actually... Life in East Germany, it was very politically restricted. Obviously, it wasn't a lot you could say. You had to be very careful. If you were an open critic of the government, you could very quickly find yourself coming to the attention of the secret police. But life on an everyday level, it's very basic. You couldn't travel, of course. You, if you were lucky, you could go to um, the other communist countries. For example, actually, Angela Merkel, the current German chancellor, had, um, who's a fluent Russian speaker, as she learned it at school in East Germany, she ended up hitchhiking all over the Soviet Union, which is actually not very limited. It's a pretty vast country. Um, she was on the Black Sea and, you know, and, and on the Baltic. But um, if you lived an ordinary life as an ordinary East German, yes, things were very simple, but life was uncomplicated. Um, and there were a lot of people, even in the years since, who, 
who in a way have had a sort of nostalgia for that. In the same way that British people of a certain age still talk about the good old days of the Second World War, they don't really mean it, but in some ways they like that sort of camaraderie and that sort of feeling of all being on the same side. Yes, I was going to um, ask, because one thing you mentioned in your piece is this um, sort of sinister Stasi state perception that we certainly have now of life in East Germany. And it, it's interesting how many people, perhaps of a slightly younger age group, but as soon as you bring up the subject, immediately mention the film The Lives of Others, which has seems to have, uh, have become the sort of iconic cultural text of, of what life in East Germany was like. Um, how, I presume you've seen, the, I presume you've seen that film. Um, I pre- how sort of, how accurate is that sort of Stasi, Stasi sensibility, Stasi atmosphere uh, as a representation of, of ordinary life in East Germany? Uh, the film's a great film. In fact, I spent some time interviewing the, um, uh, the director who was also the author of the text. Um, and it's a very accurate representation. And as far as I mean, even the flat that the, uh, the guy, the, the chief protagonist in the film lives and looks very like mine. And um, it, it, there were a lot of things to do with it. But also what it shows, it was, a, it was how there was a sort of a, a conspiracy of getting on with the state. And it's only when he, or, or rather his, his friends and, and girlfriends, start to contract him, start to get into, into difficulties, start to say things that are awkward. Until then, you know, he was, the, 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 the main character in that, in that film is, of course, a very successful figure in the arts world. And there were a lot of people who, who did remain successful figures and they didn't, didn't annoy the state too much. And some of them, as a reward, got uh, privileges of travelling to the West. But in terms of, you, if, if you didn't think about the fact that you were being spied on all the time, you, you then didn't notice it. And, and in fact, I mean, you weren't being spied on all the time. It was just this general atmosphere that said, there are certain things you can't say, there are certain things you can't do, and there are a lot of places you can't go. But food was cheap, uh, pubs were plentiful, um, and people made their own lives in, in, in a simpler way. There's a lovely... Um bit in the in the piece you've written for us where you describe um, a couple of uh, women crossing over to West Germany and just being completely paralyzed by the sort of by the shopping choice by the the handbags and the shoes the kind of this this sudden kind of flood of consumerist choice um, yeah. I suppose that must have been one of the very first things that would have hit people about life on the other side absolutely I mean when I lived in West uh, in East Berlin, of course, I was still very much aware of, of Western uh, luxury goods, Western uh, consumerism, because I was crossing. But then, of course, I, I went there from there to live for three years in Moscow, and I, I shared the, the feeling described by those two women, because I finally came back to Moscow in the late 80s, uh, from Moscow to the UK, and I went into Sainsbury's, and I just couldn't, I, I was stunned by the cereal boxes. Uh, I, was, I went to buy a toothbrush and I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I was saying, did you want soft, uh, stiff, do you want rotating? Do you, I mean, basically, when I was in Moscow, was, do you have a toothbrush? Yeah. <laughs> um, when you go back now to Berlin, Peter, uh, and um, if you ever talk to people about life back then and, and um, the events of 1989, I suppose there must be a, a huge range of feelings about it, but what what in general do 
people feel about it now, 25 years on? Do they still think about it? Do they still talk about it? Um, right, yes, there is. It is very complicated because uh, I was back there for very, very specifically. I went back actually, I'm, I'm back there all the time, but I'm back last August um, for a party in uh, a pub that I'd gone to where many of my friends had been in. Very old change since, since any of this. And in fact, they were having the 100th anniversary of the pub being in the same family hands. And you've got to think about that, it means that they, they've been in that pub, the same people, father to daughter to son, uh, for five generations near on. And, um, you know, when they'd started, the Kaiser was on the throne. They'd been through the First World War. They'd been through the Weimar Republic. They'd been through Nazism and, and then come out of that into a communist dictatorship. They'd had five currencies passed through their hands. So really, I mean, you know, people in this country haven't really got a clue what it's like. It's, I, sometimes I think people are not, don't really understand the whole project of the EU because they, they don't see that here it is. This, it's the stabilizing factor. And there's certainly nobody in, in East Germany. There is, there is still a nostalgia. There was a lot of, as I say, for that cozy security of although you were spied on, life wasn't very challenging because there wasn't really very, you couldn't have too much ambition. Um, so people got on with their lives and, and lived in, in a simple way, but, but nobody would get back to it. Um, in fact, there's a very recent quote from Mikhail Gorbachev um, making a similar point about the Soviet Union, um, or, yeah, the way Russia's changed. He's always saying there's a um, 61% of people say it's a shame the Soviet Union died, but only 9% would have it back. And I think the feeling in East Germany is very similar. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Peter Millar's uh, book, 1989, The Berlin Wall, My Part in Its Downfall, is published by Arcadia Books. Uh, Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan. Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.